the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Seth today. And we're going to go off on a new topic here for our two of the program. And I'm being joined by Jeff Van Nest, who is in studio with me. Jeff is a 20-year veteran of the FBI who has recently come to work at Center of the American Experiment, which is the policy organization that I run uh, as a policy fellow specializing in uh, public safety and criminal justice. And we're going to be talking about a police shooting incident uh, that happened in Minneapolis uh, within the last week or so. And, And you might wonder, well, why are we talking about a Minneapolis shooting incident on a Phoenix radio station? And the answer is... We've learned in recent years, unfortunately, that events like this that happen in in Minneapolis can reverberate around the country and even around the world. We had the shooting of Justine uh, Diamond by um, Mohammed Noor uh, for no apparent reason, which which made national and even international news a few years ago. And then, of course, we had the George Floyd incident involving the Minneapolis Police Department, not a shooting, but... Again, a, 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 an incident involving police practice and procedure and so forth that uh, has had enormous consequences that are with us still. And so the, the incident that we're going to be talking about now, while I certainly hope it doesn't have the same consequence that the George Floyd incident did, already is drawing attention from the Biden administration and from various jurisdictions around the country. So, Jeff, um, let's let's start in and, and maybe just explain to our listeners, well, what's the background on this case? How does it all begin? Yeah, so uh, thank you, John, for having me. Uh, you know, this case really starts uh, back in uh, September of 2020. Uh, this case really starts back in uh, September of 2020 uh, with an individual by the name of Mickey Speed. Now, he is a... 17-year-old juvenile, and in fact, uh, he is the cousin of Amir Locke, which uh, listeners may recall is the individual that was uh, shot by a Minneapolis SWAT team. So let's take it back to September 2020. Uh, Mickey Speed is involved in a fight with a 22-year-old man uh, in a suburb here, uh, Brooklyn Park. Uh, actually shoots the guy in the leg. Uh, and he then pleads guilty. He then uh, pleads guilty uh, to this the shooting, um, and he is uh, sentenced by a juvenile court judge to a state sentence of three years in prison. So what that means is uh, he's not getting sent to prison. In fact, he is sent to a uh, juvenile detention facility a couple hours north of the Twin Cities. Uh, where he is going to undergo some rehabilitation for a number of months. So that's really where this starts. It starts with uh, with, with this Mickey Speed's uh, shooting. Uh, 
So fast forward to summer, uh, this past summer, uh, he is released from this detention facility and uh, comes back to the Twin Cities where he begins to uh, veer from the probation terms that he is required to follow. Um, in fact, uh, so much so that by October, uh, he's back in front of a judge uh, who finds that he is intentionally not complying with his terms of probation. And so the judge, rather than send him to prison or send him back into detention, releases him uh, to his mother with a tracking bracelet. And so he's ordered uh, to live with his mother, and he's allowed to go out on furlough from time to time to attend school. But otherwise, the expectation of the juvenile court is that he will be supervised by his mother. Let me just pause you for a second there, Jeff, because a lot of what we're talking about here, in my opinion, is it represents a, an utter and complete failure of the juvenile justice system. We've seen this many times. So this is a guy who committed a crime shooting a guy, you know, uh, as a 16-year-old, which normally, if he was an adult, would send him to, to prison. And, and if he was tried as an adult, would, would presumably send him to, to prison. But instead, he gets slotted into the juvenile justice system. And the theory, as I understand it, you correct me if this is wrong, but I mean, as I understand it, the theory is that, that we, the public, are, are protected in this circumstance because he's going to be under close supervision, close supervision by the ju- juvenile justice system. Well, it turns out he's not under any supervision at all. Yeah, that, that, is, that is absolutely the case, John. And so, you know, he's given a laundry list of things that he's expected to do, but really it just, it just begs the question of uh, who was looking over his shoulder during uh, all of this time. And so, uh, to your point, within 30 days of his release uh, into his mother's custody, uh, he is, sus- he is uh, suspected of being involved in a uh, car theft. A silver Mercedes uh, was, was stolen on December 27th, um, about 30 days or so since he had been released. And this, this silver Mercedes will come back. You'll hear about this again because it was involved... Uh, in a crime spree throughout the Twin Cities here with, you know, several uh, armed robberies, uh, fleeing the police uh, in one instance and then tied to a a gun crime in another. And so, you know, this Mercedes is being used to facilitate crimes um, and most prominently uh, by January 10th, this uh, vehicle figures uh, in a a murder of a person named Otis Elder uh, in St. Paul. Uh, and this was a uh, what has been described as a uh, as a botched uh, drug robbery uh, in St. Paul. So, so um, this guy who is a, a, an inmate—not an inmate—but he's 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 been referred to the criminal justice system. And he's supposed to be supervised. He's got the equivalent of a probation officer. I don't know what they call it in the juvenile system. But, you know, there's somebody who's supposed to be checking on him and responsible for him. He supposedly is wearing a, a, a bracelet or an ankle bracelet or something so people know where he is. But I don't, I don't know if it didn't work or if he took it off. I mean, he's in a series of crime scenes. He apparently steals the silver Mercedes that we keep hearing about. And and then apparently there's multiple armed robberies uh, associated with that vehicle, at least one police chase. 
and um, and and then finally, the inevitable happens. You know, one of the things about these 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 criminal careers is that the criminal, in my experience anyway, it never starts at the top. You know, you when when somebody commits a murder, and then you look at his history, it seems like every time. What happens is he works his way up the ladder. He, he does a lot of other things first, and then if he's unchecked, if he's on the loose, if he doesn't get punished, if there's no consequences, sooner or later uh, he keeps going and, and commits a murder. And that's what happens here. And uh, we don't know. There's some indication it may have been a drug deal that went bad. Uh, this, this guy, uh, Speed, apparently had one or more accomplices or companions with him. But the bottom line is that this guy, Elder, got shot and killed. And um, apparently, and this is kind of an interesting aspect of this, Jeff, apparently, and this is something we learned from the George Floyd case, too, apparently there are cameras everywhere, right? And so you don't know it, but wherever, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are likely under surveillance, right? And so and so apparently there, this this murder is on film and the Mercedes is identified and, and you can see this guy's speed in the video. That's right. That's right. So that's that's kind of where that's kind of where this uh, where this starts. Uh, these you know the cameras are able to track the uh, Mercedes uh, back to this uh, apartment building called the Bolero Flats where uh, Speed lives with uh, his mother and the the cameras show us at least three people getting out of the Mercedes uh, after it is driven back to this apartment building. So we know we know Speed's involved, and he's uh, identified as the potential shooter, but we don't know who these other three people are that are getting out of the vehicle. Um, so the Minneapolis uh, Police Department, who is assisting St. Paul, uh, work together Keep going. To, to determine that uh, Speed has access to three separate apartments in that building. One that he lives with his mother, uh, his brother uh, has a uh, apartment there, and then there's an associate that has an apartment there as well. And so that's the scenario that leads to the execution of this search warrant uh, that has become a source of enormous controversy arising out of this no-knock raid. So we're going to get to that right after these commercial messages. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We are talking with Jeff Van Nest, former FBI agent, now policy fellow at Center of the American Experiment. And I'm happy to say, if you were listening before the break, we have solved the microphone problem. So you're going to be able to hear Jeff a whole lot better now. Jeff, before the break, you were describing the criminal career of this guy, uh, Mickey uh, Speed, who, despite only being 17 years old, was already an established career criminal. And when he finally committed a murder in January of this year, it was actually the second guy that he'd shot, first one that, that he'd killed. And so, and so the police have now tracked him using surveillance video that apparently is everywhere to a particular apartment in the city of Minneapolis. And by the way, this is not a slum. This is a nice apartment building in downtown Minneapolis where there are three apartments, one one his mother's that he supposedly lives in and then one his cousin's and then another friend or relative. And so and so, what are the, the St. Paul police want the Minneapolis Police Department to execute a search warrant on these three 
different apartments. Pick the story up there, if you would, Jeff. What yeah. happens then? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So it's a, the case is, is centered in St. Paul because that's where this murder took place on January 10th. So the St. Paul Police Department is leading the investigation, but because the apartment building is in Minneapolis, St. Paul is asking Minneapolis to execute a search warrant. Uh, I should mention, and also by this time, the St. Paul Police Department are looking to arrest Mickey Speed. They would like to take him into custody for this murder. Um, as you say, uh, the evidence uh, was, was pretty compelling with the video surveillance tracking the murder vehicle to this very apartment building and then demonstrating that there were actually uh, Speed and two other individuals who have not been identified uh, went into the building with him. So there are two other folks that need to be identified as part of this investigation. Uh, and so... We, 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 we pick up the story on February 2nd, which is the date that the, uh, the warrant is to be served and executed. And the Minneapolis Police Department SWAT team has these three separate apartments that they are going to uh, execute the warrant in looking for speed and, and looking for evidence of this murder. But I think we need to fill in an important point here, which is that when the St. Paul cops went to the Minneapolis Police Department wanting them to execute the search – the Minneapolis Police Department was willing to do it, but... That's right. Uh, the Minneapolis Police Department, based on the facts of the case, and we're learning more and more each day as to, as to what uh, facts they had in front of them, were very concerned uh, as to the dangerousness of uh, this, uh, this Mickey Speed. And they, would, they wanted a no-knock warrant, which is a legal term of art, uh, to allow them to safely uh, enter these apartments and look for their murder suspect. So that's a very key point here is that uh, Minneapolis wanted to have a no-knock warrant in order to go forward with these search warrants. Yeah, so that's what they do. They get the warrant. judge signs it, obviously, and now they're in the building, and what happens? The judge signs the warrant, and in interestingly enough, uh, as a side note, uh, it was Judge Peter Cahill who presided over the George Floyd case. He was the actual uh, judicial official that signed off on the no-knock warrant, and so... Uh, shortly before uh, 7 a.m. on February 2nd, uh, the Minneapolis SWAT team enters apartment 701, which uh, uh, was uh, occupied by uh, uh, Amir Locke at the time, who was uh, on a couch. So we had uh, a number of SWAT officers enter the apartment, announcing themselves as they crossed the threshold that they were the police and they had a search warrant. And then we can see from the body cam footage that has been released that there is a figure on a, uh, on a couch who is uh, underneath a, a blanket and is beginning to rustle around. And then uh, we see that there is a gun in the hand of this individual. And split seconds later, uh, three shots ring out and the, uh, the body cam footage stops at that point. So this is why this is a national news story, right? Uh, No-knock warrants have been controversial for a long time. And uh, they've been a target of, of the left, I think it's fair to say, target of anti-police activists. And this is a classic because the three or four, I think four police officers, they have guns drawn. Uh, they're looking for a guy who has recently committed a murder. Uh, and and uh, this is why they don't want to knock on the door and say, open up, it's the police, because they're afraid that when the door opens, they're going to get met with a hail of gunfire, right? I mean, that's the concern. So they enter, and, and there's a guy, he's under a blanket, can't recognize him. Uh, but as they enter the living room, uh, he's, he's waking up, seemingly. 
uh, the video is like, I can't make much out of it to tell you the truth. But he's seemingly waking up and a gun emerges from under the blanket. And, you know, the officer, let me ask you this, Jeff. I mean, when the officer opens fire, when the gun comes out from under the blanket and is pointing generally toward the police officers, is that in all likelihood per his training? That that would be per his training. You know, he he is he is responsible to identify uh, any threats uh, of serious bodily harm or death to himself or others. That's generally the generally accepted standard to use deadly force. And you know, an individual that is uh, holding a gun in their hand uh, who is not responding to police commands uh, is demonstrating an intent and capability to inflict potentially deadly force. And so, absolutely. So this is all very controversial stuff. And if, if any of our listeners want to weigh in on any side of this this controversy, give us a call. The number is 602-508-0960. That's 602-508-0960. And so, and so Jeff, it seems to me that one of the things that we're seeing here is, is uh, a scenario that is arguably an inherent peril of the no-knock raid. Here's the guy sleeping on the couch. He wakes up, a bunch of people coming into the apartment. His defenders say he doesn't know what's going on. You know, he thinks it may be an invasion by, you know, he doesn't know. And and he's apparently sleeping with a gun in his hand. I don't know who does that, but this guy, this guy apparently did. And And some gun rights people in Minnesota are weighing in very actively on the side of Amir Locke. Uh, the guy that got that got shot here by the by the cops, and saying you know ban no knock raids. This guy's got every right to sleep with a gun in his hand and try to defend himself. Yeah, so there definitely is a lot of controversy swirling around this, but I, I think it's important to remember that you know the the no knock uh, warrant is a tool that uh, does require some scrutiny. It's it's presented to a judge, it's signed off, it's approved, and it's used only in a number of cases. Uh, typically, uh, we see them in cases involving guns and drugs and some sort of uh, pattern of threatening behavior. Uh, you know, we certainly don't expect law enforcement uh, officers to put themselves in harm's way or to have to exchange gunfire with uh, a potential uh, assailant before they are allowed to protect themselves. I mean, this is a very, um, by all accounts, an unfortunate situation where no officer goes to work uh, in the morning thinking they are going to take someone's life. we got to run to a break, but I think the last point I make here is that the rules of engagement are not such that the officers have to wait until the guy pulls the trigger and say, okay, now we've determined he's a threat. I mean, at that point, of course, it's too late. We're going to go to a break and come right back with more on uh, no-knock warrants and, and the rest of the controversy around this case. Welcome back. We are talking with uh, Jeff Van Nest, former FBI agent, about this uh, Amir Locke shooting incident uh, involving the Minneapolis Police Department, once again thrown into the national and international spotlight. And by the way, these are these are controversial topics. If you've got either a comment or a question, want to be heard, give us a call. The number is 602-508-0960. Five zero eight zero nine six zero. So, Jeff, uh, once this story hit the news, this this I won't say accidental. The shooting was on purpose, but this this the shooting of this guy who was not the suspect. Um, 
the activists immediately came out of the woodwork. Uh, talk about that a little, if you would. Sure, I'd be happy to. So, unfortunately, we, we've seen sort of a, uh, a, a cycle that unspools when there is a controversial police shooting. And, you know, typically there will be immediate calls for the release of body cam footage. And if you might remember, you know, years ago, uh, that type of footage was uh, sort of held uh, closely because there was always an ongoing underlying use of force investigation, which there is, of course, in this case as well. In Minnesota, there's an agency called the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, which handles the use of force investigation. So there's a separate case that's opened and moving forward uh, looking into the shooting of Amir Locke. And so the activists then begin asking for uh, the release of this video. But uh, the body cam video at that point doesn't actually belong to the Minneapolis Police Department. It's handed over to the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension as part of their larger use of force investigation. Um, and so uh, once the body cam footage was released, and I think in this case it was probably maybe a day or two after. Well, the- I think it was the next day. Yeah. I mean, they got that out as fast as they could, it which came- I think is good practice, by the way. It was. It, it came out very, very quickly. Uh, and I think even the police chief had made a number of phone calls to some community leaders to let them know that she had seen the video and that it was coming out. I think that's part of you know, efforts to build trust and confidence with, uh, with the police department. Uh, and so the video comes out, and then um, immediately people see this, and from the time that the officers had announced themselves at the door until the time that Amir Locke was shot, I think nine or ten seconds had elapsed. And so, um, you know, many, many political leaders, media figures, activists sort of focused in on this as uh, an example of, problems with the no-knock warrant, this, you know, nine seconds from moving through an apartment until shooting somebody, and then uh, the focus was this: there had to be a ban on no-knock warrants. Well, one of the things that happened is the mayor, Jacob Fry, who's gotten famous uh, around the country, and the, the acting police chief had a press conference, and the press conference was basically commandeered by one of these anti-police local activists who really took it over. And so they're immediately out there with demands for various reforms in policing, including an outright ban on uh, no-knock warrants. That's right. That's right. And so a, a list of demands comes out, and uh, you know it, it, it not only involves banning the no-knock warrant, but they want the interim police chief to resign. They want the mayor to resign. They actually want the judge who signed the warrant uh, to resign as well. So everyone who might be culpable in this death, uh, they're asking for them to, you know, basically apologize and then resign their position. Um, and so that's how this sort of initially uh, started. And then you, you mentioned Jacob Fry. Uh, within a day or two, he announced a moratorium on no-knock warrants within the city of Minneapolis, and he appointed uh, an activist, a, a pretty strident uh, anti-police activist, to be an advisor to him on policy changes to this no-knock warrant, and he found a criminal justice professor at Eastern Kentucky University to advise him. And, you know, I, th- I think it's, it's just interesting to note that nowhere at the table was a seasoned career police officer to provide guidance as to, you know, what types of cases uh, might these be useful? Are there areas where the policy could be tightened up? Are there improvements that can be made? Uh, there was no mention of you know, that sort of type of expertise that you would really expect at the table, um, you know, to craft 
a policy moving forward that made sense. And so I think that caused a little concern here in the Twin Cities. Well, that's right. And instead you get that – we have this feeling of here we go again. You know, we've been down this path before, and, and it doesn't tend to end very, very happily. Um, we're going to run to a break here in a minute. When we come back, Jeff, I'd, I want to get your thoughts on no-knock warrants. Again, this is, this is obviously controversial. This is not an open-and-shut issue. Um, and I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, when are when is this a useful tool? What is it an appropriate tool for law enforcement to be using? We will be back with that and more here on the Seth Liebson Show. We are talking with Jeff Van Nest about the Amir Locke case and the the uh, local and national ramifications if you want to weigh in on no knock warrants or any other aspect of the case the number to call is 602-508-0960 jeff um i want to circle back to to another aspect of this case that is the, the juvenile justice system before we before we finish up here this afternoon, but 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 first, let let's talk some more about no knock warrants. You, you, you've been in law enforcement for twenty years and and have a lot of experience with this. What, what's your view? Are there circumstances where that kind of warrant is appropriate, and if so, what are those circumstances? Yeah. So in in my experience, the no knock warrant uh, can be a very important and uh, effective tool. I mean, it's obviously used in high risk cases, and so. It provides a measure of protection both for the officers and for the occupants of a dwelling. And I can give you some examples of, of cases. Uh, you think about, uh, you know, an, an armed uh, career felon who is absolutely uh, not going back to prison. Uh, you know, that sort of scenario is going to be considered very, very high risk. And so you know, knocking or announcing or, you know, waiting for that individual to move potentially could put members of the public at risk. And so sometimes the police need to move very, very quickly in order to mitigate that type of, of threat. Well, how about a hostage situation? I mean, somebody's in a house holding a hostage. What do you do? Ring the doorbell and say, you know, open up, it's the police? That's another great, uh, great example. Uh, hostage situation where lives are at risk, uh, absolutely would be a very valuable tool. And, you know, I think where, where I've seen it uh, are situations where there is, uh, you know, a drug cartel stash house that's maybe in a uh, neighborhood. Uh, and, you know, that sort of uh, uh, facility is going to be armed to the teeth, and they are absolutely looking and waiting for law enforcement to try to disrupt their operations. And so, you know, for situations such as that, the no-knock warrant can be uh, the difference between uh, you know, safely ending a situation or potentially, um, uh, you know, w- w- creating an unforeseeable circumstance where it actually becomes more dangerous. So, so where do you see this going, Jeff? I mean, the activists—you get always—I always get the feeling that the activists are waiting in the wings. You know, they've got their laundry list of of things they want to accomplish, and they're opportunistic. So if there is a, a case like this that, that involves a, a no-knock warrant, you know, they put aside everything else. There's a lot going on in this case other than that, right? But, but they, they focus on their agenda, and so we're, we're hearing these loud calls to, to do away with no-knock warrants. And uh, the Biden administration 
in response to this case. Uh, they're, they're taking some kind of measures. What's going on there? That's right. So they, they are looking at uh, potentially expanding uh, some type of uh, restriction on no-knock warrants across all of the federal law enforcement agencies. So, you know, as of right now, today, the Justice Department had actually uh, imposed some stricter restrictions last, uh, I believe it was last fall, uh, where you require an agency approval and then concurrence from the U.S. Attorney's Office in order to proceed down this path. And the Biden administration is exploring this for all federal law enforcement agencies, which, you know, had, does have national ramifications, the fact that this is an issue that is being pushed. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's useful and helpful uh, just to slow down and carefully consider uh, any changes. You know, I think improvements are always welcome, but you certainly want to invite the right voices to the table, and I think that's key here. Well, one of the problems, I, I think, with the Biden administration approach, at least what they're looking at, is they're adding kind of levels of bureaucracy. As I, as I understand what they're, what they're considering, it's not a change in, in the definition of when you could use a no-knock raid. And, of course, you always have to get a judge to sign off. That, that's, a, that's a given. But as I understand it, they're kind of adding levels of bureaucracy where you have to get more approvals within the Department of Justice before you can go to the judge. Am I saying that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so they want you to show certain things, that there is uh, an, an imminent threat to life, and they want to be able to – they want you to show what your investigation, investigation has shown to date in order to satisfy that internal bureaucracy. And there's nothing wrong with that in, in principle. I mean, fine. But, but I would think one problem is it, it takes time. And in a lot of these situations, you don't have a lot of time, right? I mean, isn't that – that seems to be questionable to add more levels of approval before you can actually take action. I mean, I think that's, I think that's right. We're talking about very, very uh, high-risk situations that uh, really require some type of uh, immediate response. And to the extent that there are bureaucratic hurdles uh, to move forward, uh, it, it, could, uh, it, it could make a big difference in a particular case. So, so we're, we're kind of heading down this familiar path uh, where, where the, the remedies that are being talked about and, and that are being proposed by activists, advanced by activists, are all kind of anti-police remedies. So that, so that from the activist perspective, the, this whole incident is about police wrongdoing, police, a, a huge police mistake. But, but it seems to me that the activists never want to look at the whole situation. And 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 they want to start at the point where these four police officers are trying to execute a search warrant in, in the context of a guy who's wanted for murder, uh, who's just within the last couple of weeks shot somebody to death and is a serious risk to do it again. And, and the thing I'd like to talk about here, we've got about uh, two and a half minutes left in this segment. It seems to me that that far, far more significant than the no-knock warrant issue in this case, if you want to look at what's the real genesis of it, is the utter and complete failure of the juvenile justice system to deal with the guy who was on a violent crime spree. Yeah, with, without question, that is, the, uh, that is the takeaway here. And, you know, that's something that we're really feeling the effects here in the Twin Cities area with uh, record numbers of uh, carjackings and, uh, and burglaries, robberies on the street. And, you know, we're told by a lot of law enforcement professionals that, you know, we have juvenile perpetrators, uh, and they will scoop these guys up. Many times they know who they are, and they will, uh, you know, attempt to get them detained. 
and, uh, and, and, and pro- appropriately be held accountable, only to find that they're released back on the street the very next week, uh, which, which, can be, which can be demoralizing. So to your point that there are larger issues at stake here, absolutely. Well, these carjackings, they've exploded in the Twin Cities and other cities, too, around the country are being carried out overwhelmingly by juveniles. And they're not doing it for profit. They're doing it for fun. And sometimes people get shot. They get threatened with with, uh, violence uh, of various kinds. And uh, the authorities have have referred to this as recreational violence. And some of these juveniles have have said, uh, well, nothing happens to us. Why not not do it? And so we have this very sick system, in in, in my view, where, where the juveniles are a huge part of the crime problem. And our system seems to lack the will to deal with it with any kind of firmness or sense of reality. We're going to go to a break here and then be back for the last segment of this hour here on The Seth Leibson Show. Welcome back. So we've been talking about this Amir Locke um, case, which is already, in a matter of days, beginning to influence policy at the federal level in the Biden administration, certainly in our state of Minnesota, but across the country. We're seeing, we're seeing reactions to this. And one of the things going on is that a lot of people are jumping to conclusions when there is a heck of a lot that we don't know. Yeah, quite a bit, quite a lot uh, remains to be done. I think, I, you know, as I had mentioned a little bit earlier, there are three unidentified accomplices in this uh, in this case, and we we don't know uh, what their status was, what their role was, and you know, it's really it's really key uh, to get all those facts out on the table before we start kind of going through lessons learned. I mean, we're certainly going to hear about uh, what the police officer, what was going through his mind at the time that he uh, pulled the trigger, and. You know, we might even learn more uh, about Amir Locke and and, uh, and and why he was there and, and to what extent, if any, he might have been uh, involved in, in any of this. And so I would expect to see more facts coming out. I mean, we just learned today the, the underlying search warrant for the no-knock uh, authority was, uh, was released, was unsealed, and we found out that uh, one of the big reasons uh, the Minneapolis police wanted a no-knock was that the gun that was used to kill uh, Otis Elder was an armor-piercing gun. And so they had a reasonable belief that they might be in harm's way as they uh, carried out this, uh, this search warrant. Well, and this guy, the, the, the allegedly totally innocent bystander, maybe he was, we'll, we'll see, but, but he's got this gun that he apparently sleeps with. It's an exotic gun. It's manufactured by a Belgian company that I had never heard of at all. And and it fires an exotic bullet. It's a kind of a long, skinny bullet of the kind that that in some at least you know in some cases is described as armor piercing. And this firearm, it's been reported on the street, is referred to as the cop killer. And so I, you know, I, it's not clear that we're dealing here with a guy as you know as innocent as the driven snow who just happens to be in this apartment uh, associated with the with the killer uh, speed with this you know very exotic weapon in his hand at seven o'clock in the morning. This gun retails, by the way, for thirteen hundred dollars, and the rounds I those rounds got to cost a buck a piece at least. Um, and I, who knows? He may have stolen it, gotten it used. Uh, we, we don't. We don't have any idea at this point. But I, my my suspicion is that there is quite a bit more that's going to come out about 
Amir Locke as well as about other aspects of the case. And, of course, one of the problems is that the public tends to jump to conclusions. We saw that in the George Floyd case where that first nine-minute video came out. It was all over. And later on, it turned out there was way more to the incident than people realized, but it was too late. Opinions had formed on the basis of that first video, and there was no way to undo it. So Jeff uh, Van Nest, former FBI agent, now policy fellow at Center of the American Experiment, thank you for being on the program. And when we come back from these commercial messages, we are going to change gears completely and be joined by feminist author Naomi Wolf. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 